6 now, Acts chapter 6, as we continue in our, continue our studies in the book of Acts. And now as we begin chapter 6, we see the third persecution of the, third, of the church, the third persecution of the church. Now, murmuring in the church, that's been going on for a long time. From the time of the early church until now, murmuring is pretty much a given. It's a frequent problem. And the reasons for the murmuring might be different. But the murmuring seems to always be present. A.W. Tozer said this, Problems are the price of progress. Friction is related to motion. A live and expanding church will have a certain number of difficulties as a result of its life and activity. A spirit-filled church will invite the anger of the enemy. So problems are part of church growth. So let's begin with chapter 6 now, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the, Helen, the, the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. What we want to focus on here is what the disciples said. They said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Here we come in our study in the book of Acts. We come to a new incident in the life of the early church. A very important incident for many reasons. It tells us about the growth and the development of the Christian church. And as we've been reading Acts and, and still in the early stages... God had blessed the apostles' work. God had blessed their teaching. He had blessed their preaching, their miracles. And we're told in chapter 5, verse 14, that the number of disciples multiplied. That was the situation. But we see that in spite of the difficulties that we studied in chapter 5, the church continued to grow stronger and stronger. And these words describing the growth of the church also give us our first insight into a developing organization. There's a lot of confusion about the church today. That is, in what, in what its focus is. And a lot of the, uh, the church confusion today uh, focuses on the point that people can't tell the difference between the church itself and the organization of the church. And the sad thing is, is that the church we read about in the New Testament over the centuries has become a great institution with, with many functions and famous people, you know, with the cathedrals and, and all that we're so familiar with today. We definitely need organization in the church. You have to organize the life of the church. But to what degree? And this is important because when the organization becomes more important than the message, the New, Testament, the New Testament model is reversed and calamity is going to follow after. It should always be the message first. That is the gospel, the word of God, then the organization. And this is the issue here in our lesson. 
a difficulty had arose in the church. And it entered into the life of the early church. We're told in verse 1 that the Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews, complained about the Hebrew-speaking Jews, saying that their Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. And because the outsiders... The Greek Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Christians, because the outsiders were being neglected, it created a situation that could have divided the church and therefore threatening the life of the church. But the apostles, and again, a good example to follow, the apostles handled the problem quickly, and that's the key. Quickly. And they handled it with a lot of wisdom. So it didn't allow Satan to, an advantage, you know, to, to, to gain any foothold in the fellowship. And that's the background here. But what we really want to see is how the apostles responded to the problem. What did they say? What did they do? What did they tell the church? So the 12 disciples call a meeting together of all the believers And they said, look, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not managing a food program. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So this is the beginning of the idea of having deacons in the church to look after the finances the business of the church, and to be responsible for taking care of the poor, the suffering, and and those who are in need. So that's what the apostles did here. But we're focusing on what the apostles said here. This is the reason they gave for appointing these seven deacons. Notice in verse 4, here's the reason. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles studied... The situation they had here. They took blame for for the problem. Which is unusual. They took blame for the problem. A lot of times we want to point fingers at others for why the problem exists. They were saying, saying, you know, we were so busy uh, serving tables that, that we were neglecting prayer and the study of God's word. The study of God's word and prayer always go together. They always go together. They had created their own problem because they were trying to do too much. And a lot of times, that, that's the way it is in a lot of churches. Because there's not, not, not a lot of, no servants. Now, don't understand what, what, what they're saying here, what the, uh, the, 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 the disciples are saying here. What they were doing, you know, the managing tables, those were important duties. But what they were saying is they shouldn't interfere with our prayer life and our time in the word of God. Spiritual leadership requires spirit filled people. And we have the same problem today. Some pastors are so busy with secondary tasks that they don't spend enough time in praying and in the word of God. And you recognize it when they step into the pulpit. This creates a spiritual weakness in the church that makes it easy for problems to develop. And now again, when I say secondary, I don't mean it to be menial. I don't mean it to be unimportant. 
All right? Nobody's too important to do other tasks. You know, I, I, you know or some think that they may be too important to do other tasks. You know, it's below my pay grade. This doesn't mean that serving ta- on tables is a lowly task because every ministry in the church is important. Every ministry. What it comes down to is a matter of priorities. The apostles were doing jobs that others could do just as well. I like what D.L. Moody said. He used to say this, that it was better to put 10 men to work than try to do the work of 10 men. It's definitely better for you, for the workers that you recruit, and for the church as a whole. You might do a lot of things, but a lot of times you won't do a lot of those things very well. The church numbers were growing here in the early church. People were being saved. And among those being saved were these widows, Greek-speaking widows. And this had become a problem. Not the widows. They weren't the problem. It was what was happening or not happening to them. Not getting their, their daily distribution of food. So the problem was simple at first. But you see, the more people that were added to the church, the bigger the church got, the more difficult it got to minister to the needs of the widows. And the others who were suffering and who were in need. So what the apostles said here is very important. The apostles tell us here what the primary task or top priority of the Christian church is. The word of God and prayer. And and we often hear about priorities. You know, you have them in the workplace. Priorities at home. Well, there are priorities in the church as well. And we need to get our priorities right in, you know, in all areas of our life and everything that we do. Yet it's unfortunate because the real problem today for many people is that our priorities are wrong. Jesus said in Luke 21, 34, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the cares of this life. And, and how often the cares of this life, the busyness, our busyness in this life, keep us from the word of God in prayer. It keeps us from going to church regularly. We got too many things to do, so many things to do. We see that with, with Martha when Jesus was coming to visit Martha and Mary when their brother Lazarus was sick. Luke chapter 10, 38, 42, it says, Martha welcomed him, that is Jesus, into her house. And Martha had a sister named Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Notice, she heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, you know, tell her to help me. And Jesus said to Martha, 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 you are worried. You are troubled about many things. But one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Notice that. She was sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his word. Martha was the other one running around. She was worried, it says. She was troubled about many things. And, and, you know, she just, priorities. And that's what Jesus was saying. Martha, priorities, priorities. But the church is always talking about priorities. And here we're we're reminded about the, the church's most important mission. Now, what is the church for? Well, that's a debatable question today. The popular teaching today is that it's getting more and more popular as well, is that 
and all over the world. It's the idea that, that of something that's called a Christless Christianity. In other words, the church can get together and do all kinds of things that, that look Christ-like, but without Christ in them. It means we should stop, you know, in the eyes of, of the world today, it means to a lot of people, it means we should stop the tradition of meeting in church buildings. You know, we shouldn't meet in church buildings for service in the morning. They say that, that day is past. We've got to do something new. We've got to do something that will draw the people in. Let's meet in the park or let's meet at the beach or, you know, some, some meet in a bar. You know, we've got to do something that will draw the people. The old idea was to preach a personal message. Evangelize. Be interested in people's souls. But that kind of Christianity to a lot of people is all wrong today. They say, we need to change. We need to change the way we do things. So what we have there is the church of their own way. And many like that. You have the emergent church, the feel-good church, the Bible-less church, the bloodless church. Don't tithe to the church. Give it to some charity or the people on the street. Don't talk about sin. Don't make people feel bad about themselves. The idea is what you, what you really need to do is go out into the world and just do good things. There's so much suffering and need and poverty all over the world. So today's idea is that the business, that, that the business Christianity is to get into, uh, get involved, is, is philanthropic work, philanthropic work. The idea today is not to send men to other countries to evangelize, but to join their politics, join their life, and get into local councils, be a part of the people's lives, and, and hopefully after a few generations, you'll Christianize them and their whole outlook. In other words, you win converse, not by preaching the gospel, not by holding the word of God in front of the people, but just do some good deeds among them. But that's not what the gospel shows us. Luke 3, 10 through 14, it says the people asked John the Baptist, hey, what shall we do then? And he answered and he said, he who has two tunics, let him go, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to John the Baptist, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed to you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? He said to them, Do not, imitate, uh, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So this is what Scripture teaches. It's wrong to put serving tables before preaching the word of God and prayer. That's the real problem with the world today. Man, man seems to be the focus of everything and not God. And that's why we have to go on, uh, go on giving uh, the preaching of God's word top priority. We have to tell people about God and their relationship with him. Look at verses 5 through 6. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, 
whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So this solution to the problem was approved by the whole church. The Hebrew leaders and the mostly Hebrew members chose six men, notice, who were Hellenists. And one man who was both a Gentile and a proselyte, Stephen. When we solve church problems, we must think of others and not just ourselves only. These seven men were humble men. They were humble servants of the church. They were men whose work made it possible for the apostles to to carry on with their important ministries among the people. People filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? People who are filled with the Holy Spirit, they won't look at any job as too menial. Or, or, you know, it's above them. Being a servant is doing what needs to be done. From, you know, cleaning restrooms to preaching the gospel. It's what needs to be done. And the servant is available to do that. So, the, the, again, the, 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 the spirit-filled person does not see any job in the church of Christ too menial. They see only Jesus and a chance to glorify him. So how did things turn out after addressing this problem? God continued to bless and bring increase to the church. Look at verse 7. Then the word of God, notice, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. First, we see the ministry grew. It says the word of God spread. Secondly, the members increased. It says the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. When the disciples didn't have to take care of the other social duties, the church grew significantly. Also, an important thing happened. Many priests were converted. Now, that was a big deal. Because these priests were from the religious section of the Jews that were really against Jesus Christ and the gospel. And here Luke describes the high point of the ministry in Jerusalem because the persecution after Stephen's death will take the gospel to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. It's been estimated that there were 8,000 Jewish priests devoted to the temple ministry in Jerusalem. And a great many of them, it says here, known as trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. So it shows that the church was still unified, multiplied and magnified verse 8 and Stephen full of faith and power did great wonders and signs among the people notice that Stephen was one of these seven men filled with the spirit that were chosen to help you know, work on this problem of the weighing on tables the emphasis is Stephen's life his life was one of fullness Verses 3 and 10 says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Verse 5 says he was full of faith. Verse 8 says he was full of power. Again, the emphasis in Stephen's life is on fullness. And in Scripture, to be be full of means to be controlled by. Stephen was controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. He was controlled by faith and wisdom and power. Stephen was a God-controlled man, surrendered to the Holy Spirit, a man who wanted to lead people to Jesus. And that should be everything. That should be what we want to do. Lead people to Jesus. Point them to Christ. Stephen is one of the greatest Christians in the early church. Stephen grew so much as a believer that God used him mightily to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He demonstrates the truth that if you are faithful in the little things, God will give you greater works to do. Verses 9 through 15. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and, and, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the, uh, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Even though Stephen had done great works, think of it, people still challenged him. They still opposed him. They were still against him. When a man or a woman is full of faith and power and does great works for God, they will be the target of the enemy. Why? Because they're being, they're being effective for the kingdom. You know, the believer that, that you know, is, it just basically goes to church and you know, doesn't share, and just you know, lives daily at their, their own life, they're not a target. Satan will leave them alone. But man, if you're, if you're preaching the gospel and you're winning souls to Christ and you're being effective for the kingdom of God, Satan's going to put a target on your back and he's going to come after you. No matter how wise and logical the arguments of Christianity are, there are always those who will argue with the obvious. And, and don't be surprised if, if your best you know, argument or your best time of witnessing and giving the scriptures are challenged by the world don't be surprised and, and don't take it personal don't, that doesn't mean that your arguments and your works weren't that they were faulty it only means that the opposers are very depraved and rebellious those who challenged Stephen were probably of the same nationality of those who caused the murmuring in the church which was studied in the first part of this chapter the arguing would be over Jesus Christ. The text doesn't say that, say that specifically, but it doesn't have to. Because the key issue in the persecution of the early church believers was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is still the main issue today. You can teach other religions in the classroom. 
You can teach the kids about homosexuality in the classroom and it's acceptable. But not Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is focused on Jesus Christ. You can pray in public places. You can pray, but not in Jesus' name. I was asked not to pray in Jesus' name one time. When I was at Golden Springs and they wanted a pastor to come and pray at their council meeting. I told them, if I can't pray in Jesus' name, I'm not coming. Plain and simple. And so what they did, they had other people there to pray. And so they prayed to the, 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 the tree spirits. and to, they, they had all of it so that now Jesus Christ wasn't the only one. They had all these different gods that three or four people prayed for. So it made it more acceptable to them. Stephen was more than, than the people could handle. He was more than the challengers could handle. His wisdom was greater than their wisdom. And the Holy Spirit was too much for them. But Stephen had God's help in this battle. The evil challengers, the opposers of Stephen, they couldn't overcome him. And in the great judgment of sinners, this same thing is going to happen. Even the cleverest of sinners will be no match for God at the judgment of the sinner. The challengers wouldn't admit defeat here. But when they lacked facts, when they couldn't, when they couldn't stand up to what Stephen was saying, they didn't have facts, they turned to force. And they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin to be condemned. And that's very typical. When evil lacks convincing substance and arguments, they will turn to, be, to a mob. You ever notice they start shouting, they start getting angry? Because they, they, they can't compete. And I don't mean compete because we're, that we're competitors. But they can't, they can't match what you're saying. They can't come up with a, with a, 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 a real substantive answer. And so they get angry and they get frustrated. And when evil can't convince, it will use force. And this, is always, this has always been true in every age. Emerson called a mob a society of bodies voluntarily bereaving themselves of reason. And often this is so true. Benjamin Franklin said that, that a mob was a monster with heads enough but no brains. When I think of the rioting that went on last year, now just destroying people's property. Friends that they knew, relatives. Just senseless rioting. They felt it was for some cause. Just foolishness. And in our land, when evil hasn't been able to convince the general public of their way, what do they do? They generate laws. They'll get the law to make their evil way legal and forceful. The arguments for their conduct are too weak to merit any... They're too weak to just have anybody consider it. So what do they have to do? They go to the law. They go to the law to make their way legitimate, to make it look like it's right. 
so that, you know, you can't oppose it. And if you oppose it, guess what? It's considered a hate crime. It's considered a hate crime. You know, it, it just, it's just the state of the mind today. Our culture has accepted two huge lies, and I love this. It's a quote by Pastor Phil Robertson. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. He says both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. To get Stephen arrested, the enemy has to first enrage the crowds. Get him worked up. Get him angry. Many evil movements thrive on unrest in society. And again, let's go back to last year. And they're still doing it. Here, in Stephen's case, they secretly induced men to lie, verse 11 says. The character of the agitation was corrupt. The reason for their stirred up, their hatred, their, their, their mob mentality was, was because their people were corrupt. It says here, the enemy induced men. That is, they secretly and unjustly solicited false witnesses. They got people to, to lie for them. To help agitate the crowd with the false witnesses. Secondly, it says, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. He didn't do that. But that's what evil thrives on. It depends on and thrives on lies. I mean, evolution, to support evolution, man, it's supported by many lies. Because without lies, these things, these things that people, they would, they would die quickly. They keep their cause alive by lying. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits them all. But the agitation was successful, verse 12 says. Because notice what it says in verse 12. It stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. And that resulted in Stephen's arrest and ultimately his murder. Stirring up the people inspired the arrest and it provided the environment that would allow for the the arrest. And it was the leaders of the Jewish nation, particularly the religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin, who arrested Stephen. The group should have been the first ones to proclaim Christ, this particular group. But they didn't didn't proclaim Christ. They opposed Christ. And they cursed Israel by their action and have cursed Israel because of their action ever since. They couldn't win the case against Stephen by fair argument, so they resorted to force. Lying. In order to have a trial, the council needed accusers of Stephen. Verse 13 says, notice, they set up false witnesses. The word set up means the council found men and in the court gave them the status of respected witnesses against Stephen. The unfairness of it all was that the council was not interested in witnesses that might speak truth for Stephen. And there were two main accusations made against Stephen. First, Notice it says in verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. 
They were thinking, speaking of the temple. But it wasn't Stephen who said this anyway. Jesus said it in John 2, 19. Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus was speaking of his own body as the temple. Not the temple building itself. But again, false witnesses like to twist the truth to fit their accusation. Secondly, in verse 15, uh, verse 14, it says, He shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Here's the second lie. They're going to they're change the customs that Moses delivered to us, or the precepts, which speak of the law of Moses. Stephen and, and, the, and these Christians, they're going to they're change the law of Moses, everything that, that they, he taught us. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. He says, says, I didn't come to destroy the law of Moses or the prophets. I came to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their purposes. So the gospel didn't change. The customs or law of Moses didn't change, but Jesus fulfilled them. As always, evil speaks from ignorance. From not knowing the truth. And evil loves to cleverly and conveniently twist the truth in such a way that it means only what evil people want it to mean. The appearance of Stephen in the council was so different than the appearance of, of the evil men in the council. Notice what it says in verse 15. All that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, that is Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The glory of Stephen's countenance spoke of his character filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what? You can often see the character of somebody in their face. You can tell by their countenance. You can't have the glory of Stephen without the holiness of Stephen. His angel-like appearance comes from from living a godly life. And if you want to look godly, you have to live godly. Verse 15 says, they looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as the face of an angel. The council had plenty of warning to leave Stephen alone. Their observing of Stephen was more than a casual look, but it was an earnest looking at Stephen. Because it says they looked steadfastly at him. They just didn't, you know, they were staring at him. There was something about him that drew their attention. His face was so angelic. It was a warning to leave him alone. And if they would have been wise, they would have stopped what they were doing. They would have stopped that council meeting right then and there. And they would have honored Stephen. But the ungodly cannot see the danger of what they do. In closing. In verse 8. It says Stephen did great wonders and miracles among the people. The the genuineness of Stephen's 
performance and what he did is confirmed by the many people who saw the wonders and the miracles that Stephen did. It says he did great wonders and miracles among the people. God has plenty of witnesses for his work. The evidence of God's work is great and God's witnesses are many. That's why there's no excuse for not believing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you to thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful things that you've done. We thank you for the wonderful things that you're doing. And God, we give you glory and honor. And Father, help us to be what you've called us to be, God. As Acts 1, 8 says, witnesses, witnesses of Christ, God. But we need to be filled with the Spirit, Lord. We need the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of faith. Because we can't do what Jesus has called us to do in our own strength, in our own wisdom. Our sufficiency is in Him. He is our all in all. And so, Lord, help us to remember, Lord. Help us to remember these things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray for the offering. Father, we thank you so much for the offering. And we give you honor, Lord.